1937, the dictator of the Dominican Republic, Rafael Trujillo, sent a representative to America to enlist the greatest Negro League players to represent his country in a national baseball tournament. The players quickly found themselves celebrated in a country with no racial prejudice, but what they couldn't know was that they were pawns in the deadly winner-take-all political game for the soul of the country. A story that would be beyond the imagination if it weren't true. The lost world of the Negro Leagues and its great heroes come alive in R. Lee Proctor's new book, Sugar Ball, a novel of Negro League baseball. In this book, History and fiction converge on the diamond, and through his writing, Arlie immerses readers in a world where passion, resilience, and the love of the game collide, on and off the diamond. My name is Maya Geis, and I am thrilled to be the host of this podcast series where I talk to Arlie about his passion for baseball, his writing process, and why the untold stories and vibrant legacy of Negro League baseball continue to capture his imagination. This is part one of six. The owner of the Crawfords, Mr. Gus Greenlee, said, Bat boy for the Crawfords, how do you like the job? You mean the chance to hang around my favorite place in the whole entire world? Get right up close to the game so I could really see how it's played? Hang out with Satchel Paige and get so close I can hear the sizzle on his b-ball? Feel the dirt fly off of the spikes of Cool Papa Bell as he races from first to third on a bunt single and then steals home? Have my eardrums busted by the crack of Josh Gibson's bat as he drives the ball higher and farther than anyone ever hit a ball before, and that includes the great Babe Ruth? Get to see every single Crawford's game and actually get paid for it? Um, yeah. I think that'd be all right, I say. Mr. Gus Greenlee lets out a loud, long guffaw. He can see right through me. And that's how the adventure began. So congratulations, Rich. Um, This is such a huge accomplishment. I mean, it takes so much work to produce uh, a book, and you have done it. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yes, this, this is the result of like a ridiculous number of years it took me to get here, but uh, it was completely worth it. I enjoyed every step. You know, there's, you know, what good's a start if you don't finish? So That's right. It's you... all about finishing. My good friend uh, Gordon Hunt, Helen Hunt's father, who was mm-hmm. a producer at Hanna-Barbera, said, the professional is the one who finishes. <laughs> yes, yeah, very true. Believe me, I have lots of starts. I know, everybody does. One day I'll be a real professional. There's a, there's a point, you know, there's a, uh, it was a Seth Godin wrote a book called The Dip. The Dip is the place between starting and finishing where you find yourself in the valley of despair. <laughs> and that's the place where you must find a way to uh, soldier on. Yeah, well, c- again, congratulations. It's an, I loved reading it. I had that pleasure of reading it very recently. I, saw, I read the manuscript before it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great, but... I suppose that we can start just, you know, you know, myself and I'm sure many of the listeners would really love to understand the genesis of this book, but also your genesis of your love for baseball. You have a bit of a didactic memory when it comes to these things. It's one True. of the first things I learned about you. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about your lifelong passion for baseball? Sure, I'd be very happy to. Um, this book is kind of the place where my love for baseball and my love for history and culture uh, meet. 
Um, I had the great good fortune to grow up in Los Angeles uh, in the 1950s. I was born in 1951, and my dad was a huge baseball fan. And in 1958, the Los Angeles Dodgers moved to Los Angeles from Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. This is a time when pro football was not a big thing. Pro basketball barely existed. And pro baseball was everything. Mm -hmm. On the evening news, Walter Cronkite's evening news, uh, when the World Series was being played, he would open with who won the game that day. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the games were all played during the day. Uh, so, anyway, the Dodgers move to uh, L.A. in uh, 1958. And, man, it is like the circus has come to town every single day. Uh, and I was just learning how to read. Uh, my parents got me a library card when I was six years old. And so what I did was uh, I loved reading and I loved baseball. So I basically, over the next mm, four or five years, took out every single baseball book in the Downey Public Library and read every single thing I could about it. Mm. And uh, this was a time when the Dodgers had this just great team with Maury Wills, Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, Junior Gilliam. Uh, they won the World Series in 1959. They came within one game of winning the pennant in 62. They won the World Series in 63. They won the World Series in 65. Mm. They were in the World Series in 66. And uh, one of the highlights of my life is Dodger Stadium opened in 1962. So the Dodgers were playing in the, in the L.A. Coliseum, the worst place in history to watch a baseball game. And from there, they moved to the best place in baseball to watch a baseball game. And I will never ever forget walking into Dodger Stadium in 1962, this jewel box of a park, mm -hmm. really a wonderful place. And the thing that would happen is that you'd walk into the stadium and you would hear the voice of Vin Scully. Mm -hmm. uh, there would be 30,000 people in the stadium. They all had transistor radios and they were all tuned to KFI listening to Vince Scully. Mm. So that ambient sound of Scully's wonderful voice would just wash over you as you came in. Mm -hmm. it, he's so much a part of the experience. Oh, oh, well, Bob Costas got it right. Bob Costas, somebody asked him about Vince Scully, and he said, Vince Scully is the only baseball announcer in history who is better than the game. <laughs> that, boy, that's it right there. Yeah, that's, I mean... Talk about a lot of responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so I was a complete baseball fanatic uh, in the in the late 50s and early 60s. And, of course, the Dodgers were the team of Jackie Robinson. So there's this cultural element, too, that I that I got into. And I got all the books. I read all the books about Robinson and mm -hmm. Branch Rickey and the genius way that Rickey integrated baseball. Mm -hmm. And I thought, boy, and that led me into civil rights. Mm -hmm. My dad was a big uh, jazz guy. He had like 4,000 shellac 78s. Mm. And he loved uh, the big African-American bands. Uh, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Jimmy Lunsford, mm -hmm. uh, Chick Webb. And so I got into that story too. And the two stories of the integration of music and the integration of baseball really rhyme in a lot of really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the, with the ancillary stories of the terrible racism that, you know, in both cases, African-Americans had to go through in order to be able to just do the things that anybody should be able to do mm -hmm. with, with no opposition. And this is something that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in future episodes. It's a huge theme in the book, but there is this element, I think the base 
these baseball players in the Negro Leagues, similar to a lot of the players and musicians in these big bands, there's this undeniable passion. These players and these musicians have to be doing what it is that they're doing. They're playing for their lives. Oh, uh, they are. And, you know, I, I have uh, I've been collecting books about uh, Negro League baseball for now 30 years. And there are a couple of absolutely wonderful books of oral histories where historians interviewed the uh, black players before they passed on. They're almost all gone now. But the, the, the one thing that leaps out from every single one of those oral histories is the players saying some version of, you know, it was a very tough life. We get on these rattle trap buses and drive for seven hours to play. We'd eat greasy food. A lot of times we, you know, either sleep on the floor someplace or camp out or something. But you know something? It was such fun. <laughs> we enjoyed ourselves so much. Right. Yeah, because the camaraderie. I mean, we see, I mean, we see this all the time. People, you know, companies now will force their employees to do things <laughs> that are uncomfortable in an effort yeah. to build that team and the right. team dynamic and to foster some kind of a culture. But every day for these players was a team building exercise. That's true. And there's another element, too, which is uh, the players all said, that, you know, when we came to town, black people would show up and it would be like um, a celebration. They put on their best clothes. They would bring a picnic they turned it into an all-day event. Mm. The players and the uh, fans would fraternize. A lot of the times when the players couldn't find lodging, the people of the town would welcome them to their homes. Oh, I'm sure. So <laughs> Certain women are like, come on over. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I'll absolutely. I'll cook you dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the, the funny thing about that is uh, a lot of people think that when baseball was integrated, it was just a great thing for all, you know, black players. And, you know, and, and the black players said, well, yes, that's true. Getting the opportunity to play big league baseball was great. But they said, you know, a lot of them said, a lot of them who transitioned from the Negro Leagues to the white, they were sent to the minor leagues first. They said it was a very tough transition because when we were on a, a black team barnstorming in the South, First of all, the guys all loved each other. They would go into these, have these events. The people would love them. So now, okay, now we get signed by a professional team and they send us to a minor league team, which is in the deep south. Mm. Usually the black player was the only black player on a white team. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes they were shunned by their teammates. Mm -hmm. A lot of times fans would throw garbage at them and heckle them. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know... The Negro Leagues wasn't so bad compared to compared to having to put up with that stuff. And not so. only that, but it's like I can imagine that once you go to once you go from a team like you know one of the Negro League teams to yeah. playing in the minor leagues, um, I'm guessing that they were probably one of the better players on the team, coupled with this level of intensity that they'd been working at. Yes, and again, true. this sort of like internal fight and hustle right. that I, I would imagine might be missing on one of the minor league yeah, teams. Yeah, well, there's another element there too uh, as well, which is that a lot of times they'd be sent to the minor leagues. They would be the star of the team, which the other players would resent. Right. And then they would face the barrier of the major league team would say, well, we only want one or two of these players on our team. So you'd have a guy in double A who's hitting 380, 
with 50 home runs and 110 RBIs. And, well, you know, I we make I'll keep them down there for another year of seasoning, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was that barrier as well. Wow. Well, so then you're doing all this research. Right. This is something you're thinking about, I'm guessing, almost on an a- everyday basis. Yeah. Um, at what point did you decide, okay, I'm ready to I'm ready to tell a story, my own story, about these players and these teams? Well, I certainly was always looking for some I mean, you know, as as a writer, I'm always looking for some interesting story, some interesting way into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a long time, I tried to figure out a way uh, to uh, do a story about Jackie Robinson. Uh, a friend of mine and I were uh, pondering writing a novel about, you know, like Robinson breaking into the big leagues and a white racist ex-Marine following him around, you know, it would be like Day of the Jackal kind of thing, mm. you know, where it like like trying to take a pot shot at him. But yeah, that didn't, you know, that didn't quite go anywhere. Um, and there are a lot of angles in the Jackie Robinson story. Uh, and so I was kind of waiting around. And then this story, uh, I, st- I was watching Ken Burns's baseball uh, series, 10, mm. 10 hours of, that was a tw- is it 20 hours. Mm. And there is a 10-second piece of that story where Ken Burns shows a photograph of all these Negro League players wearing uniforms that say Trujillo's Mm -hmm. All-Stars and uh, 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 kind of guy with a kind of a um, chocolate complexion sitting in the middle wearing a white ice cream suit. Mm -hmm. And uh, Burns said something like, and of course in 1937, a bunch of Negro League players went to the Dominican Republic to play in a tournament. That was the gist of it. And I thought, boy, that's interesting. I've never, <laughs> never heard of that. What is that? Your so, ears perked. I, yes, exactly. And at that point, I had a pretty good library. I had uh, Satchel Paige wrote his autobiography in like the late 50s. It's called uh, Maybe I'll Pitch Forever. Mm. And so I, lo- I, so I went there and I looked it up and I thought, holy cow. You know, he's told the, he pretty much told his version of that story. And I'm going... Wait a minute, you know what? And and so that that led me down that, and it was the perfect kind of story, to to write in the form of a, of a novel, because the more I looked into it, the more bizarre it got. The, you know, the more I got into it, the crazier it got. And, mm-hmm. and I said, this this is the kind of story that would make a really really good novel. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Even the rabbit hole is rabbit holes, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, I'm going like, oh, wait a minute, they were. Put up in front of a firing squad? Mm-hmm. What? Well, so, you know, I, you know, both of us, we, we work in an industry or nine to five jobs. You're a writer by trade, and I end up telling stories about people like you. Um, we talk about this thing called an armature. Oftentimes when, when people are writing a book or telling a story, it's that piece of it. It becomes sort of the theme of the book. What is that that you're looking to prove? Maybe that thing that you never explicitly say, but that you want people to take away. Was there anything when you were writing the book and as this was coming together, was there anything that you sort of understood to be the ultimate theme of the book? Uh, You know, the thing I wanted, the, 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 the thing I wanted to express, the takeaway from the book was I wanted people to understand what heroes these guys were, you know. Mm-hmm. And I believe I, I think the same thing about the guys who played in the big bands, like uh, Jimmy Lunsford's band. Um, the 
the links they had to go, the stupid, the stupidity mm. of the culture that made them go through all of this stuff, and they wouldn't stop, and they wouldn't quit, and they just had to do what it was, and they, the fact that they went through all of that stuff and still, you know, a lot of people would say Josh Gibson, you know, they used to call Josh Gibson the Black Babe Ruth, and uh, I think Ted Williams said it's better to think of uh, Babe Ruth as uh, white Josh Gibson, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, these guys were the probably the greatest players uh, in the 20th century, mm-hmm. and, they, and they weren't allowed to play in Yankee Stadium or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. I mean, uh, so I wanted that. I wanted people to go, wow, I didn't know that. These guys were really heroic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about, you know, hero and what is a hero. There's often this element of the, the hero, this figure, doing what's right, not what's easy. Right. Not what's most profitable, <laughs> not what's most fun. Um, and I think that this is absolutely something that you pick up about these players is, you know, they're just this sort of constant and persistent choosing of what's right, what feels right to them, what's authentic to them. Right. Um, as opposed to all these other factors that might be pi- might be trying to pull them in different directions. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Uh, one of the explicit themes in the book is that uh, <clears throat> as they go to the Dominican, uh, they get involved in a conflict and there is an opportunity for them to do the wrong thing for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And these are players who have to really, really work hard just to survive. And they are offered this 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 money and then they have to make a choice and that's 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 a key moment in the book mm-hmm. when, when they when they when they when they go there. So oh, yes. yeah, absolutely. And we'll get to that in a future episode, right. but <laughs> One thing I really wanted to do with this book is I wanted young people to have the experience I had mm. when I was 10, 11, 12 years old. And I would read some riveting, engrossing tale of, of baseball history. And I know young people today have so many inputs and so many d- things to distract them. I wanted to do something as compelling as Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I decided to create this 12-year-old um, kid as as my hero so young people could you know especially harry potter lovers could uh, identify with this character and they could go on the journey with him through this hopefully harry potter like you know amazing yarn mhm yeah and i mean i'm not 12 but putting myself in a 12-year-old shoes, I think that that's absolutely true. And we're going to talk about Peanut, who is the book's narrator, um, in the next episode. And it's through Peanut that we really begin to understand and see not only the sort of underlying theme that you were talking about of this question of what is a hero, but how he himself begins to transform and understand um, just values, right, and how to be a good person and how to be a man. You know, that's a lot of these players ended up even though he was their ball boy, they were really his teacher. They were, yes. Um, they were actually consciously his teachers and uh, taking care of him and uh, being surrogate fathers. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to that next conversation. 
Sugar Ball, Behind the Book, is produced and edited by Matthew Solari and hosted by myself, Maya Geis. This episode's version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game was arranged and performed by E. Jammy Jams. You can find Sugar Ball, a novel of Negro League baseball, everywhere books are available. To learn more about R. Lee, visit richlyspun.com. <laughs>